You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and start turning to the book of Galatians. And we're going to be continuing our study of this, this wonderful book by examining today chapter 4 and verses 8 through 20. Chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. So as, as, I, was, as I was studying this book, this, or studying the text this week, it, it kind of reminded me, there's a, there's a popular TV show out right, right now called This Is Us. And uh, I don't know if, you, you know, if you're familiar with the show, you know that kind of what makes, what makes This Is Us unique is this constant time shifting between different periods of the character's life. So that the, I think the goal is that by understanding where they've been in all these different areas of their life, you, you better understand who they are today and the story um, that, that's currently being told. And uh, similarly in our text today, I think Paul is calling his listeners to look back at all of these different slices of their life and as well as from his. And his point to doing this is by connecting who they were to who they are that maybe will open their eyes to see the danger and the foolishness of their current behavior. And I think the others, if you've been here throughout this, this uh, series, another thing you're going to notice is kind of a, a, kind of a dramatic shift here is there's a pretty dramatic change in Paul's tone. Um, up to this point, he's been coming at the Galatians pretty hard. He, he's kind of ticked. Um, but in our text today, we start to see this more tender, fatherly approach to his plea. So if you're able, as we always do, please stand as we read from the Word of God, Galatians 4, verses 8 through 20. But in the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. But now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? You are observing special days, months, seasons, and years. I am fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. I beg you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I also became like you. You have not wronged me. You know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a weakness of the flesh. You did not despise or reject me through my physical condition, though my physical condition was a trial to you. On the contrary, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing? For I testified to you that if possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. So then I have, I, have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? They court you eagerly, but not for good. They want to exclude you from me so that you would pursue them. But it is always good to be pursued in a good manner and not just when I am with you. My children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice because I don't know what to do about you. Pray with me. 
Father, thank you for your word that you have ordained for us to, to hear today. God, as we study your word, would you reveal the idols in our hearts as Paul reveals the idols of the people of Galatia? Would you show yourself through this scripture to be more precious and more desirable than anything that currently seduces our desires or our affections? And it's in your holy name we pray, amen. I'm gonna tell you, you guys are, I, I was excited there for a minute when we first started because it was quiet. If, you, if it was on your first service, all I know is I hope they don't have a metal roof in the new building. <laughs> it was roaring. And I was like, I was like, oh, it's so quiet. About to say that it starts raining again. So, so uh, you know, I don't know if my voice is gonna make it through between fighting with the, with the rain for all morning, but pray for me, okay? So uh, starting in verse eight, what we see here is Paul is reminding the Galatians first what their lives were like before he ever came to them. He reminds them of their, of their pagan worship with the Greek and Roman gods. As they look at this, I think there's two things he wants them to remember about this period of their lives. First thing he wants us to note is that they were slaves, that they were enslaved. They spent, they spent their lives in constant fear of what, of what Zeus or, or any of the other gods might do to them or plague them with if they didn't sufficiently appease these gods with various sacrifices. They were indebted to the gods to provide anything good in their lives. If they desired children or crops or love, they would have to appease Venus or Aphrodite or, or one of the many countless gods. And the second thing he wants them to remember is that they were slaves to things that didn't even exist. They weren't real. It's like you are enslaving yourself to gods that you created yourselves. And then in verse five, I love that Paul refuses to give even an ounce of credit to anything that is remotely associated with legalism. He starts verse nine by saying, but now, since you know God, or in other words, now that you're acquainted with the one true God as opposed to the, all of the, the pagan gods, and then it seems he immediately catches himself. And he either catches himself or he, or he intentionally wrote it this way to drive home a point. Because he knows that the sinful human heart will look for glory and validation in any way possible. So what does he do? He immediately corrects himself by saying, or rather, since you, but now, since you know God, or rather, have become known by God. He wants to make sure that they remember that they did not come to know God. Rather, God came to know them. He doesn't want them to have any opportunity for boasting at all. Pastor Jeff adamantly reminds us on almost a weekly basis of the critical gospel truth that we don't come to God or invite God into our lives. He came to us and he invites us into his life to accept even microscopic credit for our salvation is to diminish or negate what Christ did for us in his death and his resurrection. He didn't mostly pay for our penalty, the penalty for our sins. And he is not just mostly responsible for adopting us as sons. He completely paid the penalty for our sins and he is completely responsible for adopting us into his family. 
Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, the great and central basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakably his heart is set on us. And then he does something really stunning in verses nine and 10 as he boldly equates their former worship to pagan gods to their current embrace of the legalistic blending of Christianity and Judaism. Notice his wording in verse nine where he asks, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? Now, now, to be clear, Paul is not accusing them of returning back to the pagan worship of Zeus or Aphrodite or any of the other, uh, the other pagan gods. What he is saying is that pursuing righteousness by adding observances of Judaic law to grace, that they're doing the same thing. In other words, the same weak and worthless elements of pagan worship can be found in legalistic law worship. The common denominator is striving to please or appease God or fake gods by human effort. We actually have a pretty good picture of this right now. I think today is the, is the closing ceremony of the Olympics. And we have, it's a beautiful picture of this because we know, some of you probably know that the Olympics were actually originated as a form of human sacrifice through athletic accomplishment to appease the gods. That's why they were held in the city of Olympus. Of course, is the you know at the base of Mount Olympus, which was which was believed to be the home of the gods. They were appeasing them. They were they were working for their approval. In verse ten, Paul points out that their new practice of observing Jewish holidays and all of the rituals that were associated with them were an example of them trying to supplement grace with works to achieve right standing with God through human effort. It's the same thing. It's whether, whether by dietary restrictions, whether it's observance of, of holy days or athletic prowess, the goal was the same. Gain approval of the one true God or the fake gods through human effort. And the result is always exactly the same. Fruitless enslavement. This is, the Paul, this is the warning that Paul gives to the Colossians in, in Colossians 2.8 where he says, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. And I think verse 11 re- reveals what is really upsetting him in all of this when he says, I am fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. Wow. And this is, this is significant because Paul spent a lot of time in the region of Galatia. If you look at this map, you can see that, that all three of Paul's missionary journeys all went through this area of Galatia, that kind of gray area there in the middle. Four, there's four key cities, Derby, Iconium, Lystra, and Pisidian Antioch are the four key cities of, of Galatia that Paul was traveling for. These are the people he's talking to. He would write this letter and they got passed around to the other, to, to all the cities. He says, so we can see from this map that he spent a lot of time in these first two trips in these four, four cities. So for, so for Paul to see these churches that he has spent so much time in, all were on the verge of being ripped apart by legalism, it had to be incredibly disheartening to him. 
But in spite of this, in verse 12 is where we start to see this kind of a kinder, gentler side of Paul as he pleads with these people who he so deeply cared about. Look at verse 12. I beg you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I also became like you. Now, what in the world does he mean by that statement? First note the language shift. I beg you, brothers and sisters. He's, no, he's not calling them fools or bewitched anymore. Now he's pleading with them as his brothers and sisters. These are not random people to him. This is like family to him. And what is his plea? Become like me, for I also became like you. What does that mean? I think Paul here is kind of channeling his, I mentioned the this is us reference. He wants to take them back to two prior scenes. First is who he was before he came to them, and then who he was when he first came to them. Paul is first, he wants to remind them of his own Jewish heritage. Remember his great, his great proclamation in, in Philippians 3? If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day. The nation of Israel, the, pro, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Regarding the law, a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. The Galatians couldn't begin to follow the law as zealously as Paul did, but what does he say next? But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. So what he's reminding them in verse 12 is that he gladly left by all the trappings of Judaism to become like a Gentile, like them. He's saying here, remember, I became like you. I walked away from the rule-following legalism that you guys are starting to embrace. And I beg you, don't go there. Do what I did. Walk away from Judaic legalism and become like me as a grace-saturated follower of Christ. And then he decides to shift the scene again and remind them of what it was like during his first two visits with them. So we see, starting in verse 12, he says, you have not wronged me. You know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a weakened flesh. You did not despise or reject me, though my physical condition was a trial for you. On the contrary, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Now, I don't have the time or desire to lay out all the theories on what Paul's physical ailment was, but what Paul wanted them to remember is that the primary reason he spent so much time with them initially was because he was too sick to continue his missionary journey. And yet he says, despite my sickly conditions and the fact that actually his illness was what made him, it actually made him a burden to them. 
that despite all this, it says that they accepted him enthusiastically. They embraced his message of justification by grace alone. And to add to the irony of all this, you can read in Acts 13 and 14 how the Jewish leaders, they followed Paul in Galatia and they heckled him in every one of the cities he went to. In Acts 13, beginning in verse 48, we read this. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, Paul and Barnabas were in the Galatian city of Antioch of Pisidia at this time. And then it says in verse 49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the prominent God-fearing women and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. But Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. What Paul is saying here is like, I don't get you guys. When I came to you, I was, I was so sick that I was a burden to you. And, and not only that, but there were these Jewish leaders who were mocking me and condemning me and beating me everywhere I spoke. And yet at that point, you rejected the Judaizers and you loved the message of grace that I shared with you. So much so that he says in verse 14, on the contrary, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. That's how much you love me. How joyfully you receive the gospel. So why in the world are you turning on me now and embracing the very things that I told you I was so glad to be free of? And then he continues his call for them to remember in verse 15 and 16. He says, where then is your blessing? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. So then have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? Paul appears to be saying to the Galatians, what happened to the love and the acceptance that you showed me when I was with you? Where is your blessing for me now? Now, Paul gives several hints throughout the New Testament that it's, it's likely that his eyesight very well may have been one of his ailments. You know, one of the clues we can see, you see it actually in the book of Galatians in, in chapter 6, verse 11, he says, look at what le large letters I use as I write to you in my own handwriting. Now, we don't know for sure why he would write that, but certainly having poor eyesight would be a pretty likely reason for him to write with large letters, right? And it would also make sense in the, here in the context of verse 15, expressing how genuine and deep their love and care for him was. This wasn't a random metaphor he was using. He seems to be saying, if you could have given me your own eyes so that I could see better, you probably would have done it. Eye transplants aren't an option right now, but if they were, you, would have, you guys would have donated your own eyes to me. What happened to you? And then he lands kind of a passive-aggressive blow in verse 16 when he says, so then, have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? Ouch. What is the truth that seems to have made them turn on him? Well, I think clearly it's the gospel truth that we don't get to earn, to boast, to enhance, to assist, or take any credit for our salvation. 
You see, freedom from having to earn right standing or appease God may seem like a great idea at first until you begin to realize that it robs you of the one thing that we as humans in our sinful nature crave more than anything, glory, right? The Judaizers were offering something that that appealed to these new churches, And it's the ability to take partial credit for their right standing with God. And having hinted at this in verse 16, he then takes, and what I think are two of the most powerful verses in this whole book, and he unapologetically rips the mask off to reveal what lies behind all legalism. Self-glory. Look at verses 17 and 18. They court you eagerly, but not for good, They want to exclude you from me so that you would pursue them. But it is always good to be pursued in a good manner and not just when I'm with you. I actually really like the ESV translation of verse 17, which says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. In other words, the only reason that they're fawning over you, that they're making much of you is so that you in turn will make much of them. Now, I want to camp here and unpack this for a minute because I think it's a monumental verse that is as relevant for us today as it was when Paul wrote it to the churches of Galatia. You see, the very root of our sin nature is the universal temptation to desire to be made much of. And don't kid yourself, it is in all of us. Most people, if they're honest... Envy and celebrities is kind of a, is something that's very common, particularly in our culture. But I think it's not because that they're so talented or they don't even know we, we necessarily envy the money. What's really intoxicated is the thought of having millions of adoring fans. We all pursue this to some degree or other. And unfortunately, in the 21st century, social media has absolutely poured gasoline on this on this dark part of our nature by making it possible for all of us to be many celebrities. Now, I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but I suspect that many of you here right now could tell me exactly how many Facebook friends you have, as well as how many Instagram followers and Twitter followers. And you like it. You boast about it. I hear people, you know, I hear stories of people having parties when they reach a certain number of of followers. Let's be honest. If you write something and 200 people like it, it's kind of a rush, isn't it? And what I find is, sadly, it seems that like many people will blindly dole out likes online like it's candy. I think it's in hopes that that other people will be equally generous in their likes, right? I'm going to meddle for just a second here, but I can think of, there's been several times over the years when when my wife has kind of shared with me a, a Facebook post. It's pretty disturbing. And what was actually more disturbing was how many people within this body liked it. I can remember thinking like, guys, did you, did you even read this? Or do you just blindly like everything that comes up in your feed? 
And I, I won't even get into retweets, right? That seems to be taking the whole mass making much of to astronomical levels. In today's world, anybody can be an instant celebrity with just one lucky post, right? Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want you to like, get me with all the, like, don't pick with my, my social media. Social media can be a wonderful tool. And it can be used, to, it is used now to, to rightly sp- spread wonderful messages to many people. So hear me, I am not asking you to boycott social media or, or shut down your pages. What I'm saying is be careful. Guard your hearts. And most importantly, check your motives. And before some of you who know me accuse me of my own legalism and boasting of me not being sucked into the evils of of social media, I will admit to you my own preferred glory device. You see, most of you know that I'm I'm a videographer, or as I prefer to be called, a filmmaker. (laughs) Sounds more impressive, doesn't it? So therefore, Vimeo is my preferred mode for being made much of. Yep. I know exactly how many views each of my films get. I know how many total views all of my films get over the course of a week, a month, a year, or my favorite, all time. Big number. I can even see how many different countries around the world they get viewed in. And I confess, I like it. You see, we're all glory hounds, and we pursue it in endlessly different ways. But at the bottom, the message is always the same. Look at me. Whether it's celebrities who try to outdo each other in doing outrageous things or monsters who try to outdo each other in the number of people they can kill, they're all saying the same thing. Look at me. Many people scream, look at me by their bad behavior. But in Christian world, we prefer to do it by touting our good behavior or all of our virtuous endeavors and our spiritual accomplishments. Oh, wretched men that we are. Who will be able to save us from this body of death, right? And that's exactly what Paul is pointing out in the verse. He's saying, don't be fooled. These Christian Jews don't have your best interests in heart. The only reason they're making much of you is that so you in turn will make much of them. The reason he says that they're trying to exclude you from me is because the gospel of grace never says, look at me, but it always says, look at Jesus. With grace, the only one that gets made much of is Jesus, amen? But notice he doesn't stop there. He says something pretty curious in verse 18 when he says, it is always good to be pursued in a good manner and not just when I'm with you. So what does it mean to be pursued in a good manner? Well, it seems pretty clear that in this verse, Paul is contrasting the pursuit of the Judaizers to his own pursuit of the Galatian people. And the difference is that the message of the gospel that Paul proclaims when he was with them, as well as what he's proclaiming even when he's away from them, by letter, the message was to look at Jesus, marvel at the stunning love and grace that God poured out on us through Christ. Paul's message was don't make much of yourselves, but in whatever you do, do to the glory of God. And we can see in scripture that Paul didn't just say this, he lived it. 
We can read the story in, in, in Acts 14. We continue what we read earlier. There's a story in Acts 14 where, where of a lame man who was healed after Paul prayed for him. And the first response of the people there in Galatians was to worship them as gods. You start reading in verse 11, it says, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And then in verse 14, we read, the apostles Barnabas and Paul tore their robes when they heard this and rushed into the crowd shouting, people, what are you, why are you doing these things? We are people also just like you. We are proclaiming good news to you that you turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. Now that is a commendable pursuit. We see the comparison again over in Galatians 6, starting in verse 12. He says, those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised. Well, why? But only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even the circumcised don't keep the law themselves, and yet they want you to be circumcised. Why? In order to boast about your flesh. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the sick codependence that legalism produces? See what it says in there? They want you to be circumcised. Why? In order that they can boast about your flesh. And then finally, in verse 19 of our text, Paul shares his heart's desire for the Galatians. He says, my children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice because I don't know what to do about you. Notice again the tender shift in his tone where he dresses them as my children. And then he takes it to another level, comparing his pain for them to suffering labor pains which of course is really bold because we all know that the, the number one universal man rule on the planet, right? Never compare anything we suffer to labor pain. It will never go well for you. And not only does he play the labor pain card, but notice that he prefaces it with again. In other words, he's saying, I feel like I'm going through labor pains twice with you guys. He's a brave man is all I can say. But you know, despite his brave comparison, what he wants to convey is the depth of his love and his passion to see them become fully devoted followers of Christ. He was in anguish to see them be born in Christ, and now he is in anguish again to see them be formed in Christ. This literally means for them to begin to take the form of Christ, to start to look like him, or in biological terms, to grow up. I think we'd all agree there is, there is nothing on this planet more amazing than to look at a newborn baby, right? And every parent will, will talk about how they don't want their babies to grow up, yet it's exactly what they want, <laughs> right? You show me a newborn baby that isn't growing, and I will show you a desperate and panicked parent. 
that's the source of Paul's anguish for the Galatians. Instead of growing in their faith and in their Christ-likeness, they were going backwards, and Paul was experiencing parental panic. So the question then is, what's keeping them from growing up and having Christ be formed in them? And I would submit that it's the same thing that keeps any of us from having Christ be formed in us as he should. I think John MacArthur hit the nail on the head when he said this. Ultimately, we become like what we worship. If we worship money, we become materialistic. If we worship power and prestige, we become cold and calloused. If we worship an idol, we become as spiritually dead and lifeless as a stone. On the other hand, if we worship Christ, we will be conformed to his image. If he is our ever-increasing preoccupation, then we are imperceptibly being transformed into his image by the Holy Spirit. And he's exactly right. So what that means in context of our verse is is that we can reverse engineer this with the inverse and say that if we're not being transformed into his image and he is not our ever-increasing preoccupation, then it's because we're not worshiping him. And I think scripture would contend that we are incapable of worshiping him as an ever-increasing preoccupation until we first see our sin and all of its treasonous filth and we see Christ as a sole solution to our hopeless and desperate state before God. John Owen said it like this. He said, unless we are thoroughly convinced that without Christ, we are under the eternal curse of God as the worst of his enemies, we shall never flee to him for refuge. That was what was preventing the Galatians from being formed in Christ and their love of legalism affirmed it. As an example, if I have a headache, my first inclination will be to fix myself with some Advil and a nap, probably, right? But if the headache becomes, continues, or maybe becomes more severe, well, I may consult a nurse or a doctor for, for advice on how they can help me remedy my situation. But if I become aware, aware that my headaches are being caused by a massive brain tumor that will kill me in a matter of weeks, I will likely throw myself fully at the mercy of the best oncologist I can find and pray that they will provide a cure to my terminal condition. You see, legalism is evidence that you don't fully grasp the seriousness of your sin condition or that you don't fully grasp Christ as the only source capable of curing it. As I was glancing at some of the tributes this week to Dr. Billy Graham, I ran across something he once said that I think speaks powerfully to this. He said, I'm not going to heaven because I have preached to great crowds or have read the Bible many times. I am going to heaven just like the thief on the cross who said in that last moment, Lord, remember me. So if the most respected Christian leader of the last century boasts in none of his innumerable accomplishments, but acknowledges that his hope for salvation has nothing to do with his virtue or good works, but in the grace and mercy of God alone, does anyone here still want to put even part of your hope in your own works and virtue? Titus 3, 4, and 5 says, but when the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, 
he saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. Likewise, Ephesians 2a says, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. Paul ends this section by saying, I don't know what to do about you. Some translations say, I'm perplexed by you. He's saying, when I was with you, I had the joy of seeing your new birth in Christ. And I, and I looked forward to hearing many stories about your growth of your faith. He says, but instead, I'm starting to worry if your faith is even authentic and if my time with you was wasted. As one of your pastors, I, I, can, I think I can speak for all of us that our heart's desire and our passion that drives our work is that we would experience the joy of seeing Christ be born in each of you and the double joy of seeing Christ be formed in you. And with so many of you, we do. What a thrill it is. To get, it's, it's such a thrill getting to see lives being conformed to his as he becomes your ever-increasing preoccupation. But I have to be honest, there's, there's some of you with whom we're perplexed. We don't know what to do about you. You're like babies who are causing us anguish because you aren't growing. You have sat here and been fed the gospel for years. You've received countless hours of biblical counseling, but your lives are still a wreck. Your marriages are still a hot mess and the things of this world still bring you far more satisfaction than the things of God. Your time in the word of God is sparse at best and prayer is virtually non-existent unless you request that he satisfy your desires for comfort and safety. As the musicians and the communion attendants take their place and we move to a time of communion, I... I plead with you today like Paul did with the Galatians. Examine your heart for the idols that make you feel worthy that are the source of your pride and the hope of your salvation. What is it about yourself that you boast most about to others? What is it that angers or annoys you about other people that you feel superior to them? What do you most fear losing? Ask yourself why. Someone once said, show me someone's fears and I'll show you their idols. I ask that we all pray today that God will reveal anything in our hearts that we boast in besides Christ and him crucified. In just a moment, as you hold the elements in your hands, be reminded that God didn't leave glory of heaven to die like a common thief because you needed a partner. He came because you needed a savior. And oh, what a savior he is. Amen. Pray with me. Holy Father,
we are without excuse. For although we know you are God, we do not honor you as God or give thanks to you. Rather, we have become futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts are darkened. Claiming to be wise, we become fools and exchange the truth about you for a lie. And we worship and serve the creation rather than the great creator. Father, according to your steadfast love and abundant mercy, would you blot out our transgressions? Would you create in us a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within us? Father, restore to us the joy of your salvation that with our mouth we will declare your praise. And it's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.